We spent the last few weeks in what I call the grumbling section of Exodus, the end of Exodus 15, all the way through 16, and the beginning of 17, where we see first at Merah, the bitter water, where the Israelites grumbled and complained. Then they grumble and complain that they don't have any food, so the Lord gives them manna. And then they come to Massa and Meribah, where there is no water, and again, they grumble. We've been unpacking various aspects of that section of Exodus for the last few weeks. And now we're moving on to the last half of chapter 17, Exodus 17, verses 8 to 16, which I just read. And in the section before us tonight, the Israelites face war for the first time. The Amalekites attack the Israelites in verse 8, which occasions this whole narrative. We're going to examine tonight three aspects of this narrative before making some application, beginning with the first aspect, which is the weakness of Moses and the Israelites. To begin with, the Israelites had never faced war. Remember, they were a bunch of slaves who had come up out of Egypt, and they didn't come up out of Egypt by war. They didn't come up out of Egypt by an uprising and a violent overthrow of the Egyptians where they gained their freedom by force. I, should, I shouldn't say they didn't come out of Egypt by war. They did. But it was God making war against the gods of Egypt. It wasn't the Israelites making war with anybody. And then we read that God did not lead them by the Via Maris, the way of the sea, directly to the promised land, lest they face war and change their mind and return to Egypt. God knew that these people, though he had shown his power, though he had shown his might, he knew that they were very feeble in their faith and would be tempted to turn back if they faced war immediately. And so the Lord led them instead by an indirect route out into the wilderness. You'll recall that they had sent, um, or, or pardon me, you, would, you will recall that they were in the wilderness uh, it, doing this grumbling and seeing the Lord provide for them, miraculously, in various ways, making the bitter water sweet, giving manna from heaven, and then providing water for them uh, from uh, the rock at Massa and Meribah. Add on top of that the parting of the Red Sea, and by now their faith is strengthened uh, by implication to the point where the Lord feels that now they're ready to face war. And so the Lord permits in this situation that the Amalekites come to attack them. Remember that they had never faced war. It is not simply that some of them had never faced war, but rather that none of them had ever faced war. It wasn't a situation where there were some seasoned men among them, 30-year-olds and 35-year-olds who had been through several battles, and then there were 16, 17, 18-year-olds who were fresh and green and had never faced battle. It was that none of them had ever faced war. This was certainly a disadvantage as the Amalekites threatened. None of them had ever put their life on the line in hand-to-hand -hand combat in a previous battle. None of them had ever extinguished the life of an opposing soldier. Just put yourself 
in the shoes of someone facing war for the very first time, alongside a whole bunch of others who have never faced war, suddenly your life is very much on the line. I imagine for most of us, if you came home tonight and went into your house and found an intruder there, that you would have an extreme adrenaline rush, that it would be scary to you, and you might not instinctually know exactly what to do in that moment. Now, if you did manage somehow to fight the intruder and kill him, surely that would shake you up because you've never killed a man before. So here are these fresh and green and inexperienced men who have never really had their lives on the line in war and they've never killed anyone before. And so you imagine just psychologically the difference, or I mean, pardon me, the difficulty of facing war. You imagine the difficulty of facing men who were experienced, who were seasoned fighters. And as the war began, and the Israelites began killing, just the psychological adjustment that they would have to make to be extinguishing the lives of fellow men, and the difficulty that that would pose to them. Surely there were great mental hurdles to face and overcome then if Israel was to be victorious. For the Amalekites were seasoned fighters who, as Douglas Stewart says, lived partly by attacking other population groups and plundering their wealth. So the Amalekites were accustomed to, it was part of their lifestyle, every now and then they'd go fight other people groups and steal their stuff. So they were used to it. They were used to fighting. They were used to war. Moreover, it's almost certain that the Israelites were not well armed. Some of the men might have had blunt instruments or daggers or knives of some sort, but Stuart notes that it is hard to imagine that the Israelites, pardon me, that the Egyptians had allowed the Israelites much by way of armament while they were still in Egypt. Surely the Israelites were not working for their slave masters with a sword tied on to their belts. It is possible that part of the plundering of the Egyptians included taking weaponry for themselves, as they had taken silver and gold and clothing. But the scripture doesn't note that explicitly when describing what the Israelites did take. And so that is an unlikely scenario. Surely as we read that they took silver and gold and clothing, surely we would read that they also took swords if that had happened on a large scale. So it's unlikely that they were very well armed. The most likely scenario is that this is like a scene from a movie where an experienced fighting force happens upon a bunch of farmers with pitchforks and scythes and other assorted garden tools and farming implements. You might think of the U.S. Marines venturing into a jungle somewhere and finding the village people who arm themselves with the various tools that they use for farming on an everyday basis. This is the kind of thing that's happening here. You have an experienced, seasoned, well-armed fighting group going up against a, a bunch against a bunch of fresh, green, inexperienced, and poorly armed uh, Israelites. Apparently, the Amalekites had even domesticated the camel 
which can run 45 miles per hour over short distances, considerably faster even than a horse, and they had begun to use the camel's swiftness effectively in surprise attacks. And doubtless the Amalekites had other weapons on top of that. So here are the Israelites, heavily outgunned, so to speak, inexperienced and green, up against a well-armed, seasoned fighting force in the Amalekites. There's the weakness of the Israelites. Now consider the weakness of Moses in this passage. Moses is not presented to us as being an especially weak man, but we certainly do not get the impression that the Israelites conquered by the strength of Moses' arms, do we? Any of us would struggle to hold up a staff all day. Even Mr. Universe, whoever that might be at present, or, you know, the heavyweight champion of the world in boxing or UFC or something. Anyone, no matter how strong, no matter how phenomenal of an athlete, would struggle to hold their staff up all day. You couldn't even hold your empty hand up all day. So Moses is not presented as being especially weak, but rather in this passage we see him simply as an example of that well-worn phrase that the best of men are men at best. So Aaron and Hur help Moses out, holding up his hands. They have him sit down, and probably they did something like this. So they stood on either side of him, with their arms in a more comfortable position. And here's Moses sitting down with the staff up. The Israelites then, and their leader, Moses, are the picture of weakness in this passage. It's not because the Israelites are so strong that they conquer the Amalekites. It's not because Moses, their leader, is so strong that they conquer the Amalekites. The weakness of the Israelites and the weakness of Moses are presented to us in this passage by God's design for the purpose of manifesting. And here's the second aspect of the passage that we're studying tonight. For the purpose of manifesting the strength of God. The weakness of Moses and the Israelites, but the strength of God. Most certainly, this idea to hold the staff up above his head to give the Israelites victory wasn't Moses' idea, but God's. Moses wasn't at liberty to do whatever he pleased with the staff of God, nor to take figurative, symbolic action with the staff in any way apart from God's bidding. It was actually a violation of this principle, which, as we'll come to in due time, will eventually be the cause of him being barred from ever entering into the promised land. Moses, later on, will go above and beyond what God told him to do with the staff, and he will take matters into his own hands and decide what he's going to do with his staff. And that will actually be the cause of him not entering the promised land. We see everywhere in Scripture that we are not to do less than God commands, but neither are we to worship God, perform religious actions in whatsoever way we please, above and beyond what God has commanded us to do. And so though we're not told explicitly in this passage, by implication, it had to be God's idea for the raising of Moses' staff 
to correlate with the Israelites' victory over the Amalekites. It was God's idea that this would be the symbolic action that Moses should take as God supernaturally conquered the Amalekites. And as commentators point out, the fact that the Israelites would start losing whenever the staff came down was indicative of their military inferiority to the Amalekites and the absolute necessity of God's intervention. If the staff came down and the Israelites won anyway, you might just say it was just coincidence or a meaningless gesture. But every time the staff dropped, the Israelites started losing. And every time the staff was raised, the Israelites advanced. The weakness of Moses' arms, moreover, demonstrated clearly to the Israelites that it wasn't Moses, it wasn't by Moses' strength that they conquered. Rather, it was the might of God which gave them victory. The same God who conquered the Egyptians and their gods. We see the precedent set in this first battle. That same God will be the God who will conquer the Canaanites and their gods. Israel had to go fight, yes, but they were to do so confident not in their own strength, nor in any man such as Moses, but in the strength of God. And isn't this the emphasis of Moses' celebration at the end of our passage? He says in our translation, the Lord is my banner. But the same word translated as banner here is several times elsewhere in the Old Testament translated as signal. So the sense of it is the Lord is the meaning of this signal. The staff represents the Lord. Therefore, when I have my hand on this staff, I have my hand upon the throne of the Lord. This is what Moses is saying here at the end. Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my signal, saying a hand upon the throne of the Lord. This is what's meant by this. The Lord is signified by the raising of the staff. And so we have our hand upon the throne of the Lord. God is with us. God's power is at work here for us, amidst us, among us, on our behalf as we go to war. This first of many battles with the Canaanites. Moses' words are a celebration as well as a declaration of confidence in the strength of the Lord. So we've seen the weakness of Moses and the Israelites, and we've seen the strength of God. Let's look now at the third aspect of this passage, which is the resolve of God. In this passage, look at verse 14. God states his resolve to utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. God has drawn battle lines, and he intends to have ultimate and thorough victory. He's not just going to soundly defeat them. He doesn't say in verse 14, recite this in the ears of Joshua, I will soundly defeat the Amalekites. 
He doesn't say, I will gain the upper hand over the Amalekites. He says it in much stronger terms. I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. God will have no mercy upon his enemies. He won't go easy on them. God is not overstating the case. He intends to utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And so verse 16 is the consequence in the meantime, until that happens. Until God blots them out from under heaven, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So we see the weakness of Moses and the Israelites. We see the strength of God. And we see the resolve of God to utterly, soundly defeat his enemies. Thoroughly, entirely to defeat his enemies and the enemies of his people. The application of this passage to us is really Very simple. Who are God's avowed enemies today? Not the Amalekites. Not humans. Sure, some humans are God's enemies, but not the category of humans. God will not utterly blot out humans from under heaven. What will God utterly blot out from under heaven? Or who will God utterly blot out from under heaven? You see, the story of the Exodus, as we've seen several times already, is typological or typological. It's intended, it was real events, it's history, but it was intended to be history which foreshadowed, prefigured something else later. We've seen already that God calling his people out of slavery into this journey where they would learn and grow and mature and come into the promised land and where God, according to Moses in Exodus 15, would plant them on his own holy mountain that he might dwell with them forever. We've seen already that this story of God bringing his people out of slavery, getting them out of Egypt, and then bringing them on a journey to get Egypt out of them, and then bringing them to a place where he will dwell with them forever. After they cross the River Jordan, we've seen already that these are the contours of another story. The story of Christ Jesus. And as I've mentioned several times, and this won't be the last, the exodus that he accomplished at Jerusalem. Remember when Moses and Elijah appeared with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. They were speaking with him about, the Greek word is, the exodus that he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. You see, in Christ Jesus, God is bringing us out of slavery. He's bringing us out of Egypt, as it were. He's bringing us out of bondage to sin. And so we are not truly slaves to sin anymore. We don't have to sin. But the problem is, we still have this remaining corruption. We still act like we're in Egypt. 
And so not only does God want to get us out of Egypt, but he wants to get Egypt out of us. Not only does he want us to get us out of bondage to sin, but he wants to get sin out of us. And God has prepared a place for us. A new heavens and a new earth where he will dwell with us forever. You see, God has brought us out as he brought the Israelites out in order to plant us on his holy mountain as he brought them out in order to plant them on his holy mountain. And so even the conquest of Canaan is typological. God is no longer calling us to go to battle with certain ethnic groups, certain nationalities, certain people groups, certain nation states. This is not who or what God has avowed to utterly blot out and eradicate. That was part of their story. In order for them to come in and be planted on his holy mountain, everything that stood in their way, everyone that stood in their way, had to be eradicated, obliterated. God was bringing judgment upon those nations for their sin at the same time as he was rescuing his people. Their rescue involved freedom from the threat that these other nations posed to them. And so in one and the same action, which was the conquest of Canaan, God's people were being saved as God's judgment was being brought upon the Canaanite nations. Even that conquest is typological. You see, for God to bring us into the new heavens and into the new earth where righteousness dwells. God has to get rid of unrighteousness. And so God's avowed enemies are sin, death, and hell. God's avowed enemies are the demons, the so-called gods of the nations. God's avowed enemies are the unrepentant, ungodly. Those who will stubbornly refuse to come to Christ. Those who, unlike Rahab, will not tie a scarlet cord in their window and abandon their own people, their own city, their other hopes in order to join themselves to Yahweh and Yahweh's people. Those who are unlike Rahab and will not leave off the pursuit of their own gods and join themselves to Yahweh, those people will be, or are, pardon me, God's avowed enemies. And God will not rest until he utterly eradicates sin, death, hell, demons, and the unrepentant, ungodly. You see, I 
stole my own thunder this morning. These passages that we were looking at today are actually somewhat similar, aren't they? From John chapter 11, verses 7 to 16, and Exodus 17, 8 to 16. Because they're both talking about the glorious end of all things and what God is up to, the work that God is doing. I said this morning, Christ will build his church. You see, this is what he's doing. This is the conquest. Christ will build his church. And so there will be those who are like Rahab, who tie a scarlet cord in their window, so to speak, and say, no, no, I don't want to be part of Jericho anymore. Number me among the people of Israel. There will be those who say, I don't want to be outside of Christ. I don't want to oppose the Lord. Instead, I want to find sanctuary, safety, hope, and life in joining myself to the people of God. And they will be welcomed as this conquest rolls on, as Christ builds his church. Anyone and everyone is welcome to come and join themselves to God and to God's people. But the church rolls on, and the church advances. And the church presses forward. And the glorious end of all things will be that not only has God gotten us out of Egypt, but He's gotten Egypt out of us. And not only has God gotten us into the new heavens and the new earth, but God has gotten sin and death and hell and demons and the unrepentant ungodly out of the new heavens and the new earth. And so there is a conquest happening. God is at war. And God will utterly blot out sin, death, hell, demons, and the unrepentant, ungodly from under heaven. He won't do it by our strength. We're like the Israelites lining up against men mounted on camels with huge cutlasses holding in our hands a pitchfork with which we toss straw in Egypt. This is us. Christ will not build his church by our power. Christ will build his church by the power of God. And as they had their hand on the throne of God, as God was with them, so we have our hand upon the throne of God, as it were. God is with us. And so long as God is helping us, so long as our trust is in the means that God has appointed, as God had appointed the means of raising up the staff, so long as our trust is in those means which God has appointed, the proclamation of the word, the listening to the word, the imbibing of the word, the reading, the learning, the marking, the inwardly digesting of the word, the singing to one another, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, the participation in the sacraments, communion, baptism, 
The public reading of Scripture, the public exposition of Scripture, public prayer, private prayer, private devotions, family worship, all of these things that God has appointed for us in His Word, if our trust is in the means that God has appointed, our hand is on the throne of the Lord. And the Lord will give us the victory over our own sin in order that we might be made holy. You see, God was not just getting them out of Egypt, but was getting Egypt out of them. God didn't bring them the same people that they were when they left Egypt into the promised land. They had to learn. They had to grow. They had to repent. In fact, it was the second generation, as I'm sure most of you know, who ended up going into the promised land. Because they had to learn the lesson from the first generation that we need to obey God no matter what. And that if God is with us, no one can stand in our way, not even giants in the land. And so the people that went in to the promised land were believing God's promises, were were trusting in God's presence with them, were trusting in God's might to drive out the inhabitants of the land before them. So long as we are trusting in God's means, we can be sure that we will have the victory. Our hand is upon the throne of the Lord. It won't be by our own strength, but by God's. God will get sin out of us. He will make us a holy people. You won't always be dealing with the same sins and the same struggles that you presently have. As you make your way through the wilderness, as God leads you to Merah, as God lets you hunger, as God leads you to Massa and Meribah, He's sanctifying you. He's working on you. He's getting Egypt out of you. As God brings you into battle with the Amalekites and you have to psychologically face the difficulty of battles you've never fought before, trusting in God and leaning on God, God is sanctifying you. He's getting rid of your sin. He is blotting out from under heaven your sin. Slowly but surely. He is at war with your sin from generation to generation. And God is resolved by His strength to blot out your sin from under heaven. And God is resolved to blot out unbelief from under heaven. Yours, yes, but the unbelief that's out there. And you know how He will do it. One way, and this is the means that we primarily aim at is by converting people, making people Rahab's. You remember the story. She hid the spies and she said, look, I know you guys are going to conquer Jericho. When you do, please spare me. And they said, tie a scarlet cord in your window. When we come, we'll see it and we'll spare you. Rahab did just that. And she was spared. You see, she sided with Israel, with God's people, and with the God of Israel, over her people in Jericho, over the gods of Jericho. And God welcomed her into the assembly of His own. And God is doing the same thing here and now. As this conquest rolls on, people are welcome to join up with the winning team. People are welcome to join up with Yahweh and Yahweh's people. And we proclaim to them, Christ is building His church. 
And you're welcome to join us. You're welcome to put faith in Christ Jesus. But know this, Christ is building his church. And Christ's church is like a steamroller, which will flatten everything in his way. As time rolls on, Christ's church will prevail when everything else collapses. This brings us to the second way in which God will eliminate unbelief. On the last day, the scriptures tell us that God will gather out of his kingdom. God will gather out of his kingdom all unbelievers and cast them out into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, you couldn't just remain neutral if you were in Jericho or if you were among the Amalekites here. You either join up with God and God's people or you get killed. That's how the conquest worked. And that's how it's working in redemptive history too. We don't go out and kill people, obviously. Don't get me wrong, don't mishear me, don't twist my words. I'm not saying we go to people, put them at gunpoint or sword point or knife point, tell them accept Christ Jesus or die. That's not what we're doing, that's not the nature of it. But we proclaim to them that one day Christ will utterly, decisively, defeat all his enemies, and he will gather out of his kingdom unbelievers. And you will either take refuge in the God of Israel before that day, or you will be gathered out. You will no longer be in the promised land. You won't live to fight another day and plunder another nation. You won't live to to harvest your field another day outside of the walls of Jericho. When Israel rolls in, the Canaanites will fall before them. When the church rolls in, unbelievers will fall before the church. We proclaim this as we go and we invite people to faith. But we know that God will utterly eradicate unbelief. And one day, death itself will be no more. The powers of hell will be decisively and soundly and thoroughly defeated and put down. The scripture tells us that Satan is bound at present. He's on a leash, so to speak. So he's active, but he's active with restraint on. One day he won't just be bound, but he'll be cast into the bottomless pit. One day Satan will have no influence over this world. One day he will be, together with his minions and with all unrepentant, ungodly unbelievers in hell, under the wrath of God, outside of the new heavens and the new earth, outside of Christ's kingdom, where he lives together with his church forever. And death will be no more. This is the glorious end of all things. Revelation 21 speaks to this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, 
and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell, in the, he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. As God told Moses to write this in a book. Write this in a book. I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And in the meantime, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So many years later, the Lord told the Apostle John, write this down. Write this down. One day, death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Write that down. And in the meantime, know that I will be at war with these things. And the sin which is the cause of these things. And the unbelief which is at the root of sin. I will be at war with these things in the meantime, from generation to generation. And so we as the church, we need to go out and fight, so to speak, again. I'm not advocating any kind of Christian extremism involving physical violence. But we need to, to go out and fight, so to speak. Yes, not in our own strength, but in the strength of God. Trusting that our hand is upon His throne. And that He is at war with these things, these very things. And we trust the God-appointed means by which these things will be overcome. We trust that God is at war from generation to generation, that he is resolved to utterly blot out these things from under heaven. And so we move forward with confidence that Christ, by his death and resurrection, has struck a decisive blow to these things and is simply working out the victory of these things between his first coming and his second coming until he consummates his victory over these things when he returns. So we move forward with great hope, with great confidence because of God's strength and God's resolve to win his holy war.